Good morning. Welcome to all of you all, and for those of you who are joining us online, it's good to be here with you this morning. My name is Kevin. I'm one of the pastors on staff here. Before we dive into the message today, I want to take a few minutes and give you a personal update, uh, if you would uh, allow me to. About a month ago, you may have heard the news that I will soon be stepping, a role, stepping away from my role on staff here at Genesis, and today is bittersweet for me. Uh, this is likely going to be the last time I preach here as a staff member. It was about eight and a half years ago in 2013 when my wife and I and our two little girls at the time uh, moved up here from Louisville and joined the Genesis family. And this chapter of our life has been a really fruitful season. We've grown as a family, came here with two kids, now we got six. So we've had four kids in the last eight years that we've been here. Um, Paige and I have grown as individuals. We've grown as uh, in our marriage. Uh, we've learned a lot. Uh, we've developed some special relationships with many of you. Uh, we've seen God do some really neat things in our time here. And, uh, but last fall, we sensed that God was nudging us uh, onto something new. And so after lots of prayer and conversations uh, with the full support and encouragement of Paul Mumal and Jerry Neville and Steve Wallen and the elders of this church family, we decided to take a step of faith and start a brand new ministry. We're staying right here in town. Uh, it is not a church. It's kind of a different kind of ministry. Many of you have asked what the plan is. So I'm going to give you a quick little summary uh, because I have the microphone. So why not? Uh, and this is the last time I'm teaching, so what's Jerry going to do, you know? We, uh, we believe that God wants to establish a ministry hub here in the Indianapolis area. Most of you probably know that Indianapolis is nicknamed uh, the Crossroads of America because of its central location in this region of the country. Several years ago, I was looking on a map, and I was looking at Indianapolis, and I could just envision that the Lord could use a ministry base or a hub here in Indy that could spread the gospel in this region of the country. And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to come alongside Christians and churches in a few different ways. First, uh, we're going to offer gospel training. This ministry will. We're going to offer workshops and resources. We want to we want to provide Christians with a more complete understanding of the gospel. We want to help Christians grasp and have a, a better grasp of the gospel. And we want to equip them and and give them the basic tools necessary to have confidence to share the gospel with non-Christians. And so we're going to offer gospel training. Second, we're going to offer mobilization. That means we're going to help people identify non-Christians in their circle, uh, circles of influence. We're going to come alongside them to reach those non-Christians in their circles of influence. We're going to come alongside people and going to try to reach different segments of our city and try to spread the gospel in specific areas of our cities. Uh, thirdly, we're going to establish a prayer ministry. We're going to have a live interactive prayer meeting for people to attend here locally. And we'll also establish a virtual prayer wall for others in cities throughout this region to participate. We're going to pray for non-Christians. We're going to pray for Christians. We're going to pray for churches. We're going to pray for the harvest fields in our cities in this region. And here's the thing. Here's the heart of this ministry. I envision Jesus holding out his two hands. And on one hand, he is holding his bride and he dearly loves her. In the other hand, he's holding the harvest. He's the Lord of the harvest, and he wants everyone to know his love. But I'm convinced that right now the bride is a little sleepy in our part of the country. And I think that God wants to awaken her. And he wants to prepare her and equip her, and he wants to build a coalition of Christians and churches who are going to engage and participate in the last great harvest before Jesus returns. 
And so the name of the ministry we're calling it is, we're calling it the Crossroads Coalition. We want to unite together to accelerate the spread of the gospel in this region of the country. And so we're really excited about that. Uh, I can tell you this, we are walking by faith. I've never started, a, we've never started a ministry from scratch, and, uh, but we're looking forward to what God has planned and uh, trusting that he has got good plans for us and for this ministry and ultimately for this community and region of the country. Uh, I'm going to be around for a couple more months. My official last day is May 30th. I just want to say thank you. I want to say thank you. Uh, Paul is not here today, but he can watch via video. I want to say thank you to Paul Mumal and to Jerry Neville and to Steve Wallen and to the elders. They have been so, so, you need to know, they have been so supportive and so gracious and so kind to me and our family, not just through this process, but throughout the years. And thank you to all of you at the Carmel campus. Uh, you know, for the first seven years, I spent uh, the majority of my time over at Noblesville. And so it was just last January that I came over here uh, to the Carmel campus and started officing out of here. And so I just want to say thank you. Over the last year, you have been very kind and welcoming uh, and very encouraging to me and to our family. All right, that's enough of that. Let's get into the Word of God. Let me pray for us, and uh, we'll get into our message today. Father, thank you so much uh, for your love and your grace and your faithfulness. You are a glorious Father, and you have lavished all the riches of your grace on us in Christ. I'm thankful for the good news of Jesus. I'm thankful for the ways that you have worked in my life and in my family's life over the last eight and a half years, how you've worked here at Genesis. God, I trust that you have great plans uh, for us and for our family. And we look forward to seeing what you continue to do here at Genesis. And uh, God, we all want the same thing. We want your name and your love to be known. Uh, we want many people to come to know you and love you. We want to see you, Jesus, be glorified uh, in this church, in this city, and in this region, in this world, Lord. Glorify the name of Jesus. As we get into your word today, would you open our eyes, help us to see and open our ears, help us to hear what you'd have for us today. Speak to us, Lord. We ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. So as Michael, uh, as Michael mentioned, we're continuing in our series called Grow. Uh, this year, we're walking through uh, the Gospel of John together. If you have your Bibles, you want to turn to John chapter 6, uh, or you can pull that up on your phone. Today, we're going to look at the miracle that Jesus performed when he took five loaves of bread and two small fish and multiplied it, feeding over 5,000 people. But before we dive in to that specific story, I think it'd be helpful here at this point as we're walking through the Gospel of John to kind of pause and do a brief recap of everything we've covered so far in the first five chapters. So let me just kind of refresh our memories. Number one, chapter one, John introduces Jesus at the beginning of his gospel as the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word is God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. In chapter 1, John also tells us a story about John the Baptist, right? He said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We also read about the story of Jesus calling his first two disciples, Andrew and John, and they spend some time with Jesus, and then they leave that encounter with Jesus, and they declare, we have found the Messiah, and Andrew goes against his brother Peter, and, and, uh, and they start following them. In John chapter 2, Jesus tells us the story of Jesus and those first few disciples who attend a wedding at Cana, and that's where he turns the water into wine, does this, performs his first miracle, his first sign, pointing to himself as the Messiah and the Son of God. At the end of chapter 2, Jesus goes to Jerusalem for Passover. That's where he clears out the temple, right? And then it's there also where he makes the very first mention of his eventual death on the cross and his resurrection. In John chapter 3, Jesus tell, uh, John tells us about the story of Nicodemus and his encounter with Jesus. And Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night. Nick at night, we call him sometimes. <laughs> he comes to Jesus. And, hey, you've not heard that? He comes to Jesus at night. And uh, Jesus says, listen, Nicodemus, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. 
It's one of the first, it's, it's where one of the most famous verses of the Bible is written, John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever would believe in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. In John chapter four, John tells us of Jesus' encounter with the Samaritan woman at the well. And it's there where Jesus refers to himself as the living water, the well that never will run dry. And if she will drink from him, she'll never thirst again. And he tells her, he says, I am the Messiah. And she goes home and tells her family and community, and many people come to faith. In chapter four, Jesus is back at Cana again. And that's where he encounters the royal official who's come to him when he's asking Jesus for help to heal his sick son. Remember this? Jesus heals the son from a distance. He says, go on, your son will be healed. The royal official takes Jesus' word and we're told that he and his whole household eventually come to faith and come to believe in Jesus. Then in chapter five, we see Jesus encounter the paralyzed man. And Jesus asked him if he wanted to get well and he heals the man. That brings us up to chapter six today, the feeding of the five or more than 5,000. This is one of the few stories in all four gospel accounts that is recorded in all four gospel accounts. So all four of the gospel writers include this feeding of the 5,000. And from a chronological standpoint, from a chronological perspective, we're over two and a half years into his ministry. Most people don't realize that it was two and a half years into his ministry before Jesus actually chose the 12 and called them to be his disciples, his apostles, his leaders. And shortly after he chooses the 12, he sends them out two by two on sort of a mission trip uh, to various towns and villages in Galilee. So they go out, the 12 apostles, they go out to minister without Jesus. They go to these towns and villages for the first time. They're out there by themselves and they're proclaiming the kingdom of God. And they come back and we're told in Mark chapter six, the disciples return probably uh, to the Tiberias, city of Tiberias on the Sea of Galilee. So here's a picture of Israel at that day and time. Here is a picture of Galilee. Here's the Sea of Galilee. You'll see on the left side of the Sea of Galilee is Tiberias. This is probably where they rendezvoused when the 12 disciples came back and they met up with Jesus right here at Tiberias. And in just a minute, they're going to cross the lake and go up to Bethsaida. Bethsaida is on the very top right. You can barely see it on the screen, but Bethsaida is up on the top right. That's where they're going to go. See, they gather around Jesus and they report all they had done and experienced on their trip. Now, part of what they experienced reported Jesus was some devastating and tragic news. While they were out doing ministry, they had received word that John the Baptist had been killed by King Herod. That's what had been devastating for Jesus and his disciples. And so Jesus decides it's time to withdraw to a quiet place to get some rest. Now, Luke's account of this story tells us that they went across the sea to Bethsaida. Mark's account tells us that some people saw Jesus and his disciples crossing the lake. And when they see them, they make their way to Bethsaida. The Gospel of Mark tells us that the, Jesus saw this crowd coming towards him and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Imagine the disciples are like, oh, don't have compassion on them. We need some rest. We need some time. We've been out doing mission. We've been doing ministry work. We just heard about John the Baptist. We're grieving. We're confused. We, we need some rest, some time alone. But Jesus sees this crowd. He has compassion on them. And Luke tells us that Jesus welcomed them and he spoke to them about the kingdom of God, and he healed those who needed healing. So we think that Jesus and his disciples spent several hours ministering to this crowd of the people, probably most of the day, ministering to this crowd. Now, it gets late in the day, and the disciples say, listen, we need to send these people home. It's getting late. There's nothing to eat here. In Mark's account, we're told that Jesus said, hey, to the disciples, he told the disciples, hey, go see how many loaves of bread he could find in the crowd. Now, that brings us to John's gospel account. You with me? All right, 
John records the whole event like this. John chapter 6, verses 1 through 15. I'm going to read the whole story. You can follow along as I read. Chapter, one, chapter 6, verse 1. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias, and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. So John's telling us there was a crowd. They saw Jesus. Jesus and his disciples go up on the mountain. The crowd and Jesus and his disciples are ready to clash, right? John tells us here in, in verse 4, we're going to come back to this later, that the Jewish Passover festival was near. This crowd was likely headed to Jerusalem for the Passover, they see Jesus. They want to go be a part of what he's doing there. Now, when Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread, buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already knew what, what he had in mind he was going to do. Philip answered him, it would take more than a half year's wages to buy enough bread for each one, of, each one to have a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But how far will that go among so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. Verse 11, Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same thing with the fish. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them up and filled the 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. After the people saw the sign that Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who's come into the world. Jesus, knowing they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. That's an incredible story, right? Obviously really rich, incredibly meaningful. It's recorded in all four gospel accounts. We don't have time to touch on everything in this story. As I prayed this week, I feel like the Lord gave me a specific theme or a specific line for us to look at today. Many scholars believe that when you add women and children, there were likely 15,000 people there in attendance. Just for a little context, the Pacers basketball arena seats 18,000, right? Can you imagine being there, being one of the disciples or one of the people in the crowd sitting there watching Jesus take this little bit of food and multiply it miraculously and feed the crowd? My question is, what were the people thinking, right, as they're doing this? How long did it take? Did it take like, like was it like, like really efficient? Was it like, like 15 minutes he got it out? Was it like, did it take a couple of hours? Then here's the question I've always asked about this. I don't know about you, thought about this. Could you see the fish and the bread multiplying? Like, what did it look like? You know what I'm saying? I mean, did you see the, like, did, the did one fish turn into two and into four, like right before their eyes? Like, what did that look like? Or the bread, did it, did it go from one to two to four to eight? I'm like, I don't, I want to know. Did Jesus kind of do it back here and say, sorry guys, I can't see this. Like what, how did it happen? Did you just keep reaching in the back? Did you just keep, like, I don't understand. What happened? How did it happen? Don't you want to know? Oh, don't you want to know? Let's hopefully the chosen shows us. Okay. <laughs> Only, see, that's good, a good portion. Some of you are like, what's that? What's that? Just Google the chosen. Okay. Now, as impressive as the miracle is, we should not get distracted by it. And here's what I mean. The real question we need to ask as readers of, gospel, of John's gospel account is, what was the purpose of the miracle? If you examine all four gospel accounts of the story, John records something in his account of the story that the other three do not record. And I think that gives us some really significant insight. I think this is what the Lord would want us to see this morning. John tells us that Jesus asked Philip a question. Let's go back to it in verse five. 
Jesus looked up, saw a great crowd coming to him, toward him, and he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? Now, why does John include this question in his account? I mean, Jesus often taught by asking questions. It was a common strategy of his. And this is an interesting question, right? It's kind of a loaded question. I mean, it seems a little ridiculous. It doesn't really seem to make any logical sense. There are over 5,000 people in the crowd. There's no way they have enough money to feed that many people. So why would he ask Philip this question? What's Jesus getting at here? Well, John tells us in the next verse, verse 6. He asked this, Jesus asked Philip this, only to test him. For he had already had in mind what he was going to do. Jesus knew he was going to miraculously feed the 5,000 people. But he's going to use this to test Philip. Now, what's a test? A test, by definition, is an evaluation. When a person takes a test, it is designed to evaluate or to reveal or to draw out what's inside them. And there are different kinds of tests, right? There's a test of knowledge or understanding, a test of strength or ability, a test of character. What kind of test is Jesus giving Philip here? And we have to remember, we're in John's gospel account. And as we've discussed in previous weeks, John's gospel is all about belief. He uses the word believe 98 times. This test is about Philip's faith. Jesus is testing his faith, but testing his faith in what? Now, at first glance, we may assume that he was testing Philip's faith in Jesus's ability to miraculously feed the crowd. Philip, do you think I can miraculously feed the crowd? We might think he was asking. That's easy to think that because the miracle is so impressive. It's what gets our attention. I don't think that's what Jesus was testing Philip's was testing Philip on. I think Jesus was testing something in, uh, more about Philip's faith, not in his ability to perform the miracle. But if, that, if not that, then what? Whenever you're studying the Bible, especially a story in the Bible, you want to pay very close attention to the words that the author uses and specifically the statements that the main characters make. It's in those statements right? It's in those key words where the author is going to reveal the purpose or the message of the story. So let's highlight a, a few, just a few quickly, a few key verses or phrases, and we'll put these pieces together. I think we want to see the message of the story here. First, let's look, listen closely to Philip's response. Verse 7, Philip answered, it would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Jesus asked him, where shall we buy, feed, uh, buy bread to feed all these people? And Philip's response, probably while he was laughing, is we don't have enough money. And even if we had six months worth of salary, we could only buy enough for them to all have just a bite to eat. That wouldn't fill or satisfy the hungry, their hunger. That wouldn't meet their need. And so at this point, Philip seems to just be focusing on the practical, physical need. But notice this, that Jesus didn't ask Philip, do we have enough money to purchase food for everyone? That's not what Jesus asked. What are you asking? Where? Where will we buy food for them? Hang on. Where will the food come from? Jesus asked Philip. The next phrase I want to highlight is in verse 11. John says in verse 11 that the food was distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. Key word. If you're following along in your Bible, underline the word wanted. As much as they wanted. They got all the food they wanted. They got all the food that they desired. Ooh. And in the next verse, verse 12, John writes this. When they had 
all had enough to eat. You might want to underline the word enough there. See, some translations read when they had their fill, when they were full. The word means to be fulfilled or satisfied. Do you see this theme? John is telling us that Jesus miraculously satisfied and fulfilled their physical hunger. But here's the thing. That was not Jesus's goal. The goal of his miracle was not to feed the crowd's empty stomachs. Now, why do we know this? Because the next day the crowd comes looking for Jesus again. You got to keep reading in the story. We'll jump ahead in verse 26. Here's what John records Jesus saying to them the next day when they come back to Jesus for some more. Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, you are looking for me, but not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and you had your fill. Here's what Jesus says to them. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Is our word for the day, right here. Pay close attention to this passage. Jesus says, do not work for food that spoils. They were focused on food that spoils. He says, but I'm here to bring you food that endures to eternal life. And where does that food come from? Which the son of man will give you. All right, so Jesus is saying to them, listen, you missed the point of the miracle. You don't see it, but the food you received from me yesterday is temporary food that spoils. He's saying, my goal wasn't to satisfy your temporary earthly hunger. It wasn't why I did the miracle. I was trying to show you that what I'm really offering you is eternal food that will satisfy your eternal hunger. Pastor and author D.A. Carson says, what the people see is the actual miracle, the multiplication of the bread and the fish, the miraculous sign. But what they fail to see is what the sign truly signified. At a superficial level, the signs attest that Jesus has remarkable powers. That's awesome. He does. But that's not the point. The feeding of the 5,000, they had filled their bellies uh, of the people and the crowd loved it. But the crowds didn't understand that the sign had a much deeper significance. It was a symbol-laden miracle that pointed to the gospel. Now, what is the gospel in this story? Go back to Jesus' question to Philip. Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? The correct, the correct answer, the answer Philip should have given sounds something like this. Jesus, the bread they really need can be purchased in any marketplace. The bread that will truly feed them for all eternity comes from you. And we don't need money to purchase it you will purchase it for them on the cross with your blood. And the only way they're going to receive that bread is through faith in you, Jesus. Ooh, isn't that good? See, the bad news is that you and I can't purchase the bread we really need, the bread that will meet our greatest need. The gospel tells us that God is our creator and our source of life, but we've all selfishly turned away from God. And we've been separated from our source of life. And that separation has led us to brokenness and death. And this world is a dry and parched land. And apart from God, we are hungry souls. And we try to fulfill and satisfy our souls with the temporary things of this world. But everything we turn to, money, success, relationships, drugs, alcohol, whatever it is, it's all food that spoils, it does not endure. It won't satisfy or fill our souls. And so what happens? We're left starving. But the good news is this, God loved us too much to leave us starving. 
The Apostle John is teaching us that the heart of Christianity says that Jesus left heaven and came to earth and that Jesus is the bread of eternal life. He is our source of life. And on the cross, he purchased the bread for us and he offers it to you and me. And so the question is, how do we receive that bread? And that's exactly what the crowd asked him. Go back to verse 28. When he told them to work for bread that doesn't spoil, but for bread that endures to eternal life, they asked him, well, what must we do? What do we got to do? What's our part? Here's what Jesus says. The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. How do you receive the bread that doesn't spoil? Your part, our part, my part is to believe. We receive it by faith. Listen, the meager loaves and fish represent our meager faith. And the good news is that Jesus only asked you, and he only asked me for a little bit of faith. Faith as small as a mustard seed. I'm not sure where you are in your relationship with God right now. Maybe you're feeling close to God and you feel satisfied and fulfilled. But maybe, and I'd say this is probably true for most of us, maybe your faith feels a little small and meager right now. You look at your faith and you think, I'm not sure how far this will go. Be reminded this morning that Jesus says to you and to me, bring me the little bit of faith you have. And I can become the bread of life for you. I can satisfy you and fulfill you. Or maybe you're here this morning and you've never turned to Jesus. You've never really trusted him to be the bread of your life, to be your eternal satisfaction. And you're here this morning and you're hearing this message. And you're thinking, I am hungry. There is something in me that is starving. There is an emptiness inside that has not been fulfilled or satisfied. Can I encourage you this morning to believe and receive Jesus as your bread of life? See, all of Jesus's miracles and signs that John recorded in his gospel account have a much deeper significance and meaning. Author Nesley Newbegin says this, if you only see the visible effect and fail to see the sign, your life will be an endless rat race in pursuit of satisfactions which never endure. Why then, Newbegin writes, do you spend your money and your time or your energy on things, on bread that doesn't satisfy, on your labor that doesn't satisfy. The true bread is Jesus Christ and he gives eternal satisfaction. satisfaction. This is the message of the gospel. This is the message of John's gospel. All of Jesus' miracles were temporary solutions for earthly problems, but they were all pointing to the greater miracle that Jesus himself is the eternal solution to our eternal problem. Jesus meets the eternal needs of our souls. I want you to think through this with me. I want you to just take, quick a minute. We're going to take a quick minute. We're going to look back at three of the miracles or signs that John recorded. What were their real problems? What were the needs of their souls? Let's look at the wedding at Cana. What was the earthly problem? We're tempted to say that they ran out of wine. Mm, but why was that a problem? It was a problem because of the shame and humiliation that came with standing before their family and friends with no wine. Don't miss this. What was their eternal problem? It is the humili humiliation and shame of standing before God and having no faith in Jesus. The woman at the well, what was her earthly problem? We're tempted to say it's because she had no husband. But why was that a problem? It was a problem because it meant that she had been rejected. 
with no one who desired or accepted her. But what's her eternal problem? It's standing before God, rejected and unaccepted because she had no faith in Jesus. The royal official, he's got a sick son. What was the father's earthly problem? I were tempted to say it was because he had no medicine for his sick son. But why was that a problem? It was a problem because it meant that he was desperate and powerless to cure his son. What was his eternal problem? Standing before God, desperate and powerless, without any way to cure the sick souls of his family. Do you see it? See, for Jesus, the miracles were temporary solutions to earthly problems. His goal was always to be the solution to their eternal problem. So if you have faith in Jesus, the good news is there's no more shame or humiliation before God. You have nothing to be ashamed of. Jesus has given you his honor and his glory. If you have faith in Jesus, you're not rejected before God. You are more accepted and loved and desired by the God of the universe than you could ever imagine. If you have faith in Jesus, you're not desperate or powerless because God's grace is sufficient for you and his power is made perfect in your weakness. And God is now your glorious father and he's lavished the riches of his grace on you. See, Jesus is the eternal wine, the eternal medicine, the eternal healing, the eternal spouse. He is our everything. Jesus is our source of life. He just isn't just our ticket to heaven. He is our eternal life. So here's the thing. Whatever problem you're facing right now, be reminded that it's a temporary problem. It's temporary. When your eternal problem has been solved, it changes how you face your temporary problems. See, as Christians, we have an eternal hope, an eternal peace, an eternal joy, and his name is Jesus. And if you have believed and received him, then he is with you. His presence dwells within you. You have his acceptance and love. You have his care and his strength. You have the promise of his faithfulness. He is the good shepherd who will take care of you. So whatever problem you're facing today, you should by all means bring that problem to Jesus because he does have the power to turn water into wine. Jesus can heal the sick and the lame. Jesus is capable of restoring your broken heart. Jesus can give you wisdom and guidance. And so yes, by all means, cast all your cares on Jesus because he cares for you. But don't miss this. The point of it all is that Jesus is the true bread, the only one who will satisfy, bring eternal satisfaction to your soul. Can I get an amen? Amen. So my question for you today is simply this. Have you received that bread? John opened his account in chapter one, verse 12, with these words. And to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. If you've never received him or believed in his name, you can do so today. You can simply pray to him with whatever little faith you have and tell him you want him to be your bread of life. And for those of us who've trusted Christ, we get to take communion together. So the band's gonna come out. They're gonna play one more song. We're gonna play a little music. There are some communion stations around the room. If you didn't get some communion on your way in, but go ahead and just get some now. Historians say that the early church, when they celebrated communion together, they used barley loaves. Those barley loaves were like little biscuits, probably. Crackers. And today, that's what we do. We use small crackers and a little bit of grape juice. When we take communion, 
we are, we are engaging in the Last Supper, if you will. Remember at the beginning of John's story, he says the Passover festival was near. Do you remember what the purpose of the Passover festival was? The Passover festival was when they got together and they ate and they drank in remembrance of the deliverance that God had delivered them from out of slavery in Egypt. He had brought them out of slavery and into freedom and he brought them salvation. And when they took communion together, they were declaring our God is the God who saves. When we take communion together today, oh, get excited. We eat that bread and we drink that juice. What we are declaring is that Jesus is our source of eternal satisfaction, that he has solved our eternal problem, that he has satisfied the needs of our souls. And so I'm gonna give you just a minute. I'm gonna pray and they're gonna play a little soft music. You can have about 30 seconds, maybe a minute to take communion. I want you to give thanks to God and thanks to Jesus for being your bread of life, the one who truly satisfies. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much. Thank you so much for your son, Jesus. I just wanna say I'm so thankful that you rescued me 20 years ago. Thank you for being my source of life. Thank you for being our source of life. Today as a church family, Jesus, we believe that you are real and that right now you're at the right hand of the Father, that you see us and that you are with us. And that God, when we take this cracker and we drink this grape juice, we are saying to you right now, Jesus, in faith, with, with the faith that we have, we're saying to you, you are our bread of life. We pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen.